Welcome to another episode of Politically Entertaining. I'm Frank. I'm here with Byron again. Uh, Byron, before we get started, let the listeners know what we do, how we do it, and why we do it. I believe almost every episode I start off telling you guys we got a great show for you today. I won't. I will not be exaggerating this time. We have a special guest. I can't wait to get to it. But before we do, like Frank said, um, we pretty much just give you news and politics. We try to cover some things that aren't covered as much in mainstream media. And we also try to tell you what's important. Before we get into politics, Frank, everybody's been talking about it last week. A little four-year-old in the Cincinnati Zoo fell in the uh, pit or whatever you want to call it with a gorilla. And I, I, you know, I guess I just wanted to comment on a lot of the ridiculous things I heard from people saying they shouldn't have shot the gorilla. Like there are some people that literally said the gorilla should have been allowed to kill the boy because, you know, a bad parenting and stuff. Um, And a lot of people were saying, you know, if that was my child, I would have hopped down there. And that sounds great. And I don't want to say you're lying if you would hop down there. But my thing is you have to really be careful with that because it was a 15 foot drop. So once you got down there, like, for you know, you can make matters worse, agitate the gorilla. He snaps the kid neck and then come after you. Or if you're able to distract the gorilla, like some people were saying, then, you know, how's the boy going to get out of there? It's a 15 foot drop. So it just didn't seem that well thought out. But a lot of people saying what they would have done. I did feel bad for Harambe. He pretty much got killed for just being a gorilla. Um, and people were commenting on the bad parenting thing. I'm, I'm hesitant on that too, Frank, because we, you're a new parent, man. We, you're going to make mistakes. We all have bad moments as parents. They don't usually lead to something where the whole world knows about it. So I reserve the right to, to, to judge them on that. I don't want to call them bad parents, but they definitely had a bad parenting moment. But my question to you is, do you think that they were bad parents? And would you have jumped, you're a new father. Would you have jumped down there? For your daughter. <laughs> when I let, let me let me answer the questions in reverse. Would I have jumped down there? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I would I would say yes, it sounds good, but at the same time, you don't know if you would freeze up or if you would think, well, by jumping down there, um, and, and you know, potentially, you know, there's always a thought that animals we we don't give them enough credit for being intelligent. They may not they may not react the same way to a child as they do to an adult. If you especially as a man, if you jump down there, you could be seen as challenging them on their domain. They might come right after you. And of course, most people are, are not equipped to uh, handle a uh, tangle with a gorilla one on one. So I kind of feel like, uh, you know, certainly, uh, you know, I don't I honestly don't know what I would do. What I, what I would do now, I'll answer the question, I guess, now in reverse. I've already answered it in reverse, but I didn't answer it. But what I probably would do is keep an eye on my daughter to make sure she didn't drop into this uh, enclosure. I think that's the toughest thing to understand as a parent is like, okay, you're watching your children, you're watching your child, you're at this thing, and all of a sudden they end up getting down into into this thing. Is it was was it a straight drop? Was it a slide? I mean, I don't understand the, the layout of the Cincinnati Zoo well enough to say, okay, how do they actually get into the enclosure? So I think. Uh, you know, for, for most parents, their answer is, is going to be based on something they probably would never deal with because most parents are going to pay close attention. You know, there's always signs they don't hang over the railing, don't get too close. I think I'd probably be pretty Nazi-ish when it comes to that, uh, when it comes, you know, comes to my child. So, um, would I jump down there? Potentially, if I saw that the, my child was in grave danger, would I do it? Yes. 
Um, would it be the right decision? Probably not. So, I mean, as for the parents, I think I think the best scenario happened. The child didn't get hurt. Yes, the gorilla died. But as as a person who, you know, I, what I believe my different beliefs like that I've talked about, is like, I, don't, I mean, an animal's an animal and I get it. Um, you know, the gorilla should not have maybe been shot, but he is a gorilla. He's not a person. Um, and, and as many people have said, a great counterpoint is if you're so upset about the gorilla being shot, why aren't you so upset about the gorilla being in the zoo? So I'm just going to leave that there. That's a great point about the gorilla being in the zoo if you're upset with it being shot. I do I do want to say, though, there were some funny memes that came out from this thing. I mean, people making, uh, you know, funeral programs and, and uh, funny videos and stuff, man. It, I mean, it was a sad situation, but, you know, people always seem to find humor in it. The parents of the child... Uh, actually, people set up a GoFundMe for the parents and, and, and sent it to them, and they declined the money. They said they're going to send it to the zoo, and uh, hopefully they can honor Harambe some type of way. They're better than me. I probably would have kept the money, but I do think there's a way the zoo can find a way to make some money off this. Uh, I don't know if they want to have like a, a exhibit for, the, for Harambe or whatever, but people seem to be really attached to it. But that's enough about that, I guess. Uh, let's get into some politics. Politically entertaining your Cliff's notes to American politics, and now your host, Frank and entertaining. Um, we lost the icon this past weekend, this past Friday, so we'll be discussing the great Muhammad Ali later on in the show. We also have a, like, like I told you at the beginning, a very special guest. We have Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina joining us, and me and Frank also discussed. JetBlue, I guess they have some type of clothing police on their uh, on some of their flights. Uh, we'll tell you about that later on. But for now, the president, he just recently got back from um, Hiroshima, or for you, Dr. Dre, the chronic fans, Hiroshima. Uh, he just got back from there. And he actually, he, he has definitely become the president of first, the obvious, you know, the first African-American president. He was the first sitting president to visit Cuba since uh the embargo and now he's the first president to visit uh hiroshima's you know once we after we dropped that uh that atom bomb on them so you know a lot of people conservatives mainly they were you know criticizing this trip frank they uh they called him they said that they accused him rather of apologizing for uh what we did in uh hiroshima he didn't actually apologize he did say some I would say some comforting words or some things that we can do better next time, but it wasn't an official apology and that gets people upset. Um, another thing he did, it was, it's kind of taboo for a president to criticize another politician on foreign soil, but he wound up criticizing uh, Donald Trump while over there in Japan. This was during the G7 summit. Uh, so he criticized Trump. My question to you is, how do you feel about that decorum as far as not criticizing another politician? 
uh, on foreign soil. And what also made this interesting is, you know, out, presidents that are getting ready to finish their term, their second term, they usually don't, you know, weigh in personally on the candidates that are running. Uh, I mean, Bush did take a slight veil jab, some suspected at Obama uh, during in 08, but he didn't mention him by name. You know, Obama mentioned Trump by name. That's something sitting presidents usually don't do. And like I said, he he criticized them on foreign soil. Is that something that you hold near and dear? You think that's something that our leaders shouldn't do or, or are you completely OK with it? I think you made a great point. You said he's a president of first. So he's the first president that in a long time or maybe ever to criticize another politician on foreign soil. Uh, as far as far as the decor, I mean, I do believe it's something that certainly, you know, you can, uh, you know, certainly hold to most of the time. But to me, Donald Trump has been a guy who uh, President uh, Barack Obama's whole presidency, uh, he has basically accused the president of being a non-U.S. citizen. And he's part of the birther movement. He's actually part of the backlash that the part, you know, when people look at what's happened to the Republican Party, he's, you know, he, Donald Trump is a big part of that. So his personal attacks on the president to me, uh, have, to me, I guess, nullify any first or any decorum or anything like that, because the whole presidency that, you know, Donald Trump has disrespected uh, a sitting president in office and questioned his citizenship as, as if it was even possible. Like, let's just be real. I mean, uh, the world is cer certainly just being, you know, I haven't said this on the show, but just, I mean, let's be real. The first black president is not going to get in being a foreigner or being a Muslim, let's just be real about it. White people aren't going to vote for uh, a Kenyan Muslim uh, for president. It's just not going to happen. Let's just be real about that. So uh, the fact that Donald Trump has been playing this game for a long time and, and, and basically President Obama just came out and said what he felt like saying, I don't really have an issue with it because it's Donald Trump. And to me, uh, he's not uh, he's not really even a politician. He's 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 a I don't even know how to describe what he is. He's a megalomaniac. He's he's a mogul who is now running for president, but he's hardly a politician of, of traditional uh, means. But, you know, I don't really think too much of it. Uh, and as far as him visiting uh, Japan, good for him. You know, we, we bombed uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, what is it, 60, 60 years ago, over 60 years ago, around that, around that time period. So, I mean, you know, could, could it could it have been better? You know, obviously the Pearl Harbor was we had we responded in response to Pearl Harbor, so that was certainly a strong action that we wanted to show. And I don't think we should apologize for that. But at the same time, I think a generation of people have grown up and passed that, and it's okay to move on from it. There's no reason to hold a grudge, uh, you know, over something that happened. Japan is now our ally. I don't think we're at war with them anymore, so I don't see the real issue uh, with going over there uh, at this point. You mentioned uh, getting over it. And, and that's that was the hope of this uh, of the White House as far as him making this trip, especially to to Hiroshima, because there are still lingering feelings between how Americans feel versus how the Japanese feel about that. And, you know, like you, you mentioned Pearl Harbor, Americans feel like, you know, we were justified in, in dropping that bomb over there because they attacked uh, Pearl Harbor. And, you know, Japanese people that 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 bomb had a lasting effect on generations, you know, with the with the radiation and, and, and whatnot that came from it. So it wasn't just like everyone got killed instantly. Some people like suffered years and years from that. So it was an attempt to just heal the two countries. Like you say, they are our ally, but you still, if you can, if you can heal certain, you know, negative feelings, you definitely want to try to assist in that. Um, we have a 
this is kind of like a first for us. We have a we usually try to bring current, like very recent stories. This is kind of a late story. It occurred a couple of months ago, uh, but I was inboxed by a fan of the show, Frank, and they actually this was a few weeks ago. They wanted to know our thoughts on this. So, as you know, we had the White House Correspondents Dinner a couple of months ago. I believe it was back in April. And Larry Wilmore, uh, the new host that he took over for Stephen Colbert, he was like the, uh, the the comedic MC of it. And, of course, if you remember, the most controversial thing that came out of it was him using the word, the word nigger or N-word for people that don't want to hear that word. But uh, not only did he use that word, but he called the president of the United States that. And so you had people offended on two fronts. A lot of people, you know, there are a lot of people that are just offended by the word itself. Uh, black people, you know, black people included. Um, and the fact that he called the president that brought on a new uh, swarm of criticism when it comes to that word. Uh, so the, the fan, they, they definitely wanted to know what our thoughts were on that. Me personally, I have to be honest, I do use the word. Um, most of the time it's in joke. I don't use it as much as I used to in my early 20s and teens. You know, I, I really use it maybe in a jokingly manner, but I don't use it hardly as much. I do listen to music that contains the word a lot. Uh, as far, if I was offended by anything, and I wasn't really offended, um, but, you know, calling the president that, I don't know. I'll say this, the way the president received it, the way he took it, like he he embraced Larry Wilmore, he laughed at it. it I, I would say it kind of made it somewhat better. If it were me, I definitely would not have went there. But uh, that's that's what comedians are about. They're about shock value. They're about, you know, telling, you know, they're about going there, so to speak. So uh, let me get your first. Let me get your thoughts on the N word itself and then on calling the president that word. Whew. The N word. I mean, this is this is a whole show right here. I mean, you got I mean, you know, you know, you know how you know how I drone on about stuff. I mean, you know, I just kind of feel like when you're talking about the N word, it's a very touchy subject. Uh, you know, I feel like this. If you have to ask, can you use it? You can't use it. I don't necessarily think I think at this point, obviously, there are people that will go on, a, you know, certain sites or certain comments. They'll say, you know, N-I-G-G-E-R. And obviously the term of endearment that um, people in the black community use, not just black people, I'll say, but people in the black community to, you know, because I know there's some maybe Hispanic and white people that may use the word and the people that they're close to are OK with them using it. Uh, it's N-I-G-G-A. So there, there is a there's a different differentiation of the two words. One is a term of endearment and one is obviously the term that is, uh, you know, obviously all things bad. So, you know, the term Larry Wilmore used was more of a term of endearment. So, you know, from that standpoint, it's not shocking. I mean, nobody in the black community is shocked by him saying, yo, Barry, you my nigga. It's like, OK, I mean, if he had said this in any other, you know, I guess situation or if he had said it privately, it would have not done anything. I think there's, you know, a lot of people don't understand the word. Some people think the word shouldn't be used at all. There's, there's black people that feel like the word shouldn't be used at all. There's white people that don't use a word. They don't feel comfortable. And that's fine, too. It's just a word. Um, certainly, um, you know, words carry a lot of power. I know people think it should be not used. I, I As you mentioned, I myself have used the word. I don't use the word as much uh, as, I, you know, because I, I don't 
I don't love the word itself, but I do understand it's part of culture and it's part of an endearing term. So uh, as far as Larry Wilmore, I don't think he meant anything by it. And as you mentioned before, he is a comedian at the White House Correspondents Center. They do try to make a splash, a shock value, and he certainly did with that word. So I don't see it being a huge deal. And, And obviously one of the things I think he said is, you know, President Obama's whole presidency, people have been trying to uh, basically call him a nigger in so many words by saying he's not uh, he's not an American. Uh, you know, he's not uh, you know, he's a Muslim. He's not a Christian and all these things. And he's this and he's that. It's like you might as well call him the N word. So I don't really think that people even understand what they're doing. People get off on a specific word being used a certain way. But the way that people have behaved against the president uh, certainly trumps any uh any, any word or term of endearment or any confusion about how a word is being used. I mean, let's just move on from it. Uh, you know, like I said, I don't think it's a huge deal. Uh, would I have done it? Probably not. But like, I'm not a comedian and I'm not trying to make a shock value uh, statement at White House Correspondence Center either. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned white people that are also offended by the word. And, you know, I don't know how this is going to come across, but for the most part, when it comes to I won't just say white people. I'll just say non-black people, period. When it comes to them being offended by the word, I have to kind of say I don't listen to it too much because for the most part, to me, in my opinion, it's not so much more that they're offended by it. They're just upset that they can't use it and get away with it because the only time you really hear non-black people complain about it is when a white person or someone uses the word and gets in trouble. So when you have a Don Imus or you have a... um, What's the what's the cook name? The female cook? I forgot her name. Paula Dean. Paula Dean. But let yeah. me, actually, I'm gonna stop you right there. The Paula Dean. For people that don't know, I've read the whole transcript. This is a couple years, maybe three it, years old. It was wild. It was way bigger yeah. than her just saying. Yes. You know this n word. People people may have boiled it down to that. I'll see if I can find it and post it on our on our Facebook yes. page. But it's <laughs> worth a read. Her awesome. and her her and her brother are disgusting. Uh, people disgusting, you know, racist people, disgusting. His brother's a misogynist, just disgusting people. And and I would challenge you and say, if you, you know, anybody who listens to the show and claim you're black conscious, you need to quit supporting Paula Dean. It ain't about using the N word. You know, it's not like, oh, somebody used the N word. I don't really care. You know, if a white person used the N word and, and, you know, something happened, okay, things happen. I've said things that I I don't want to be recorded and would maybe not look so good for me. But what Paula Dean, the pattern of the things she did, that's not. That's not somebody just reacting or saying something in a moment of rage or or a bad joke. She's just a bad person. He, Frank pretty much said everything he needed to on that one. Uh, I do want to say for anybody, for any of the other listeners, though, if like I, like we encourage you from time to time, if you have anything that you would like to hear us discuss and we haven't discussed it, you know, we prefer you go on our Facebook page, Politically Entertaining It, and suggest it there. But if you know me personally, I don't mind you inboxing me and we certainly will get to that topic. Um, as I mentioned earlier in the show, our guest today is a United States Senator, Tim Scott. This is going to be a big deal for us. We're going to discuss fighting poverty. And we'll, like I said, again, we'll also discuss, uh, it, it's, it's hard to believe, the late Muhammad Ali. But we'll definitely discuss him later. Uh, but Frank, we have another big primary coming up. And I think for weeks now, we... Well, I know you especially, but I've kind of slowly come around too. We've kind of written Bernie Sanders off, but we have the California primary that's coming up this Tuesday, 
548 delegates are up for grabs. Right now, in most of the polls that I've seen, Bernie is leading Hillary by one point. And Frank, that, you know, Bernie ain't quitting. I mean, Bernie is not quitting. And he's talking about trying to flip super delegates his way. And the, 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 the thing that I've always said, Frank, and this, this can happen to the most honest, well-intended person, I feel like ambition sometimes can really, I don't want to use, corrupt is not the word I want to use, but sometimes it really can, you know, have you do things that you normally wouldn't do. And I think, you know, the big crowds that he's had when he's campaigned and the the, the victories that he's had in, in, in certain caucuses and primaries, it has really made him get a taste of getting close to winning this nomination. It has made him ambitious. And I just wanted to know, in your opinion, do you think he's beginning to toe the line of going too far? Like he's made comments like she isn't fit for president. He kind of took that back. Uh, he, he's critic he's given he's given the Republicans so much fire. Now, if you're a Hillary fan, you can't really cry about this because she ran against Obama up until this point. June was when she got out. But up until this point, this is how long she stayed in her primary against him in 08. And she definitely said some questionable things about Obama as well. So she's kind of getting a taste of her own medicine. But, you know, for you, I know you have felt felt like he's been written off. But I want to know your thoughts on do you think he's going too far? Do you think that ambition, as I as I mentioned, is getting to him? Oh, I mean, that's that's tough because, I mean, Bernie Sanders is a, is a weird position because if he if he is really he's he's such a weird character. Now, I've, I've been trying to kind of read him a little bit better. He claims it's like if he was a true member of the Democratic Party, he would he would get out because he's he's he is hurting Hillary, as you mentioned. Uh, when she gets to the to the um, real election against Donald Trump, so it's like, what is he holding on for exactly? What is he trying to do? Uh, you know, I think that he, you know, has has made a good run of it, but I don't really see any way that he really gets. I don't see any way that he really gets the win, if you know what I'm saying. You know, how, you know how sometimes when in a in a series we watch we watch basketball, NBA in particular, once a team wins four games. Uh, the series is over, right? You don't, let's say a team wins in six games. Well, they don't say, hey, let's just play the seventh game because I want to play it, you know, see what would happen. So, okay, used to lose 4-3. I kind of feel like that's what's happening with Bernie Sanders here. I don't really, I know there's super delegates that he could try to flip, but it just does, the math just doesn't seem to add up regardless of what happens. And, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong just, you know, after I finish. But I, you know, he's, he's, he's just dragging it out the inevitable. So, you know, like you mentioned, his ambition it may have gone to his head. I think, I think, I think you're seeing that on both sides. I think Trump's ambition went to his head, except for the fact that he's now the nominee. But I think Bernie Sanders is the same. And, and honestly, when I, when I, this is going to come a little bit controversial on the show. And, you know, I feel like I should just say it. I've been thinking this for a while. It's like Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders are, are to me both equally dangerous candidates and, 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 in different ways, but equally dangerous. And I don't love Hillary Clinton. I, I, I said on the last show, I feel like she's dishonest. Uh, she's just a dishonest person, but she does know how to play the game. And when you, when you're, when you're running a country like the United States with the power and resource that it has, I'd rather have somebody who knows how to play the game than somebody who, you know, is, is, is basically not, you know, basically don't know what the hell they're doing and could end up, you know, in a catastrophic situation. Again, tell us how you really feel. 
Uh, the the thought of him becoming too ambitious first came to me when I saw, you know, it was uh, some type of Democratic Nevada meeting and some of his supporters said some very uh, harsh things about Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who's the head of the DNC. And I felt like he wasn't forceful enough in saying they needed to apologize or, you know, some of them stated that they're they're willing to uh, not riot, but definitely cause a ruckus at the uh, convention. And I just felt like um, he or someone, you know, in his campaign could have could, could talk that down because you don't you don't want it to go like that. Um, the super delegates that he's talking about flipping, even if he were to flip those, the ones that he's talking about, it still wouldn't give him enough to overtake Hillary. So he is really grasping. But I'm telling you, if he wins California and if he wins California big. I know you just said you, you you're tired of him. You want him to buy out. He he want he's not going anywhere. And and last thing, what's been interesting is I talked to some uh some press people who are going to the different conventions. And in the beginning, many of them wanted to avoid going to uh, Ohio because it seemed like that was going to be crazy with Trump and Cruz and, and and this candidate and that candidate. And then all of a sudden Trump sewed it up and now. The Republican convention looks like it's going to be a normal convention. On the other hand, the Democratic convention, which is will be in Philadelphia, you know, with Bernie claiming right now that he's not going to go anywhere. Now, if he loses California, he said he's still going to stay in it. But, you know, I, I think what he says will go on deaf ears if he loses California. So it's just interesting that the Democratic side has now become the more the combative, uh, more interesting, a lot to talk about side because Trump says he sold it up. And other than his outrageous comments that he made, like that, my African-American over there or whatever he said the other day, um, there's not really much to talk about on the Republican side. Uh, as I stated, this guest for me and Frank is a huge, huge deal for us. He's a U.S. senator, for those that don't know. We only have 100 of those, so we have one of the 100 on this show. And as you will learn, he is one of only two black senators currently serving in the Senate. So of that 100, we have one of the only two black senators there on our show. And he will be the first sitting politician that we've ever had on this show. So me and Frank are very excited about having this guest. Let's talk to Senator Tim Scott. Listen up. It's time for a politically entertaining exclusive interview. Joining us today on Politically Entertaining, he is the United States Senator from South Carolina. He's one of two African-American senators currently serving. The other happens to be the co-sponsor of the bill that we'll be discussing today, Investing in the Opportunity Act. Senator Tim Scott, thank you for joining us today, sir. Absolutely. It's my pleasure to be on the, on the show with you, both of you guys, and look forward to the conversation. This is a big deal for us, so we really appreciate it. Um, I wanted to start off first. I mentioned your bill on a, on a previous episode, and I just wanted to know, before we actually got into what that bill actually does, was there a particular constituent or a story that you read that made you want to come up with a bill like investing in, in Opportunity Act? 
Really, I think it comes from my own personal journey, to be honest with you. I grew up in a single-parent household, uh, raised in poverty. Uh, my neighborhoods consistently had very high unemployment, very high high school dropout rates, and also uh, just mired in hopelessness. And I've always uh, been a part of a process to understand and appreciate how to free other kids like myself from the quagmire pit of poverty. And one of the ways that I understand after researching it and having lived it was the necessity of looking for capital that can be infused in communities without necessarily gentrifying those people who live in those communities. So it's finding a way to strike a balance by bringing new private sector dollars into neighborhoods or into areas that could spark development and entrepreneurship and free some of the kids like myself from the quagmire pit of poverty. That that is very interesting. Um, when I when I mentioned your bill, the the episode prior to that, I had read an article. It was called it was titled the eviction economy, and it was talking about you know what poor people go through. And I made the statement then, I was, I was telling Frank and I was telling the audience that there's really no incentive for politicians to really address poverty, and we were questioning how could we really tackle poverty. And then I read your bill the following week, so it's like, yeah. here's, here's Senator Scott to, to kind of shut <laughs> me up and give me an answer on that. So uh, for the audience, if you could, I wanted you to, uh, you know, in your own words, since you're the man that, that wrote the bill, explain how it works and how how you hope that it will directly impact financially distressed communities and poor neighborhoods. Yeah, so, so the simple, uh, simple approach to the legislation from my perspective is to think about people who make a profit. That profit requires a tax. We call that typically a capital gains tax. If there's a way to encourage people, instead of paying the money to the government immediately in a capital gains tax, why not take that money and reinvest it into communities, giving the person who makes the gain a seven-year deferral on paying the tax so they can do something good in a community, and then they still owe the tax. But they get the deferment so they can make a long-term investment in creating jobs, revitalizing communities, rehabilitating houses, giving kids like so many of us growing up today as I was 30 years ago, giving those same children hope and opportunity through these private sector dollars coming into these neighborhoods and directing those funds in such a way that we see the spark that creates opportunities. And by doing so, the person who makes the gain or the profit gets to defer the tax, but they have to do something long-term in these communities in order to defer the tax because you still owe it. So I think of it as a win-win. They defer the tax, which gives them a chance to do some good work in some distressed communities. We use the definition of distressed communities that is defined by the new market tax credit that creates low-income areas. We use those low-income area designations to bring more resources in those communities, and by doing so, I think long-term, We'll have more money to the government because there will be more profit to be made in those communities. We will have more people 
coming out of poverty with a passion of reinvesting in their own communities. When I started my business, I hired people from my community to work in and run my business. So it works. I've lived it. I've studied it statistically. So now we just need to deploy it on a nationwide basis. Senator Scott, this is Frank. I have a question for you. So one of the things you mentioned and I think is great is uh, how you're, you know, putting money in the distressed communities to help develop uh, the, the local community. Now, one one interesting part of the bill that I, I read was, you know, the bipartisan working across the aisle that you, that you have yeah. um, with with Senator uh, Cory Booker, and I find that very interesting because a lot of times in the we hear about rancor and stuff in Washington about you know politicians can't work together, they can't accomplish things. I mean. Why is this something that we don't see more? I mean, this is a great bill, great act, but when people are, you know, upset about Congress or Congress has a low approval rating, why yeah. um, do we not see more collaboration like this? This is something that's sorely needed in many places, not just South Carolina, but certainly, like you mentioned, nationwide. Well, we need more people like you guys in the media and in the communications business giving air to the fact that there are bipartisan coalitions working on behalf of people. Cory Booker and myself see ourselves as servants to the people, not just leaders of the people. I think you first need to serve people before you know how to lead them. It's a Jesus model of of leadership, servant leadership, putting the servant first. And so Cory and I have been uh, teaming up on education legislation, on apprenticeship programs, as well as this latest iteration in looking for ways to address people living in a poverty to address the issue of poverty because while he came uh, he came up in a very affluent middle-class uh, neighborhood, he has a passion for people. He moved into the uh, housing projects, the high-rises, when he was the mayor of Newark. He did that voluntarily so he could have an understanding and appreciation. Well, I lived I lived in the hood involuntarily. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was raised there. So we both look for ways, Frank, to make a difference because we have had the experience so Often people want to do good and may not fully appreciate how because they haven't always or maybe ever lived there. So I think those of us who have lived there and been there, we have a responsibility to burden, to shoulder the burden on behalf of the next generation who then will pay it forward and pay it back. I think that's just great. And another thing I wanted to, to ask you is, obviously, as an African-American and a Republican senator, certainly there are certain stereotypes in the African-American community that sometimes go along with the Republican Party. Now, obviously, everything yeah. you're doing is totally in line with what needs to be done. What are some of the myths that, that you can debunk as far as with you, know, you doing this bill as an African-American working in uh, distressed communities that will let people know that, hey, the Republican Party is definitely for all people, you know, especially distressed and poor people, where sometimes there's this, there's this um, how would you say, mythology or that, yeah. that there is like the Republican Party doesn't care about poor people and all they care about is the 1%. Can you just kind of dispel some of that and talk about, you know, why this bill can do that as well? Yeah, Frank, I'll tell you, that it's pretty clear. Um, we fought, uh, our, 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 our parents and grandparents fought during the, the Jim Crow days, during the 60s, for each of us to be judged by the content of our character and not the color of our skin. I think it's so important for us to judge each elected official as an individual. We all choose our parties for a number of reasons. I chose mine because I think consistently the Republican Party is the party of small business, the party of the military, the party of a faith-filled community. Uh, 
So it, it works for me. But my agenda is clearly an agenda that looks at the people living paycheck to paycheck, and I'm looking for ways to alleviate the pressure and the pain. My mom worked 16 hours a day, three days a week at times, to keep us off of welfare. She did everything in her power to give me the model of someone who went to work and came home so that, as she would say, so that I would not just be average. She wanted me to be more than average. I'm living my mother's American dream standing on her shoulders, and I'm taking her with me. And so I honestly think that there are a ton of Republicans who have similar stories who may not look like any of us. We all three look a little bit alike. But the fact of the matter is that if you have the passion for people, you should express that in your legislation. And so whether it's my legislation on education, on apprenticeship programs so you can earn and learn, because sometimes college isn't for everyone. We should have respect and dignity in all work. So I want to make sure that anyone who wants to work feels the power of dignity working on their behalf. I think of my legislation that I co-sponsored with Mike Lee that basically says if you're a mom or anybody and you're working full-time like my mother was and you have kids at home, maybe flexible work hours should be encouraged so that you can go home for a couple hours and finish the work at night. We should do some common sense things that says we care about you, the person working paycheck to paycheck. That's not a Republican thing or a Democrat thing. Let's call it a human being thing. And so I'm about that. We are talking to Senator Scott, Republican from South Carolina, and we're discussing Investing in Opportunity Act. Uh, Senator, I wanted to ask you, um, again, when I mentioned your bill and I read up on it, I saw that it mostly uses uh, – Private and private investor uh, funds is not is not taxpayer funded. So yeah. when I when I was talking about the bill, I said you know it should get little to no resistance in Congress and it should be able to pass. So I wanted to ask you what's the status of the bill? Have you met any resistance so far? And if so, what has been their argument against this bill? Well, all good will be attacked. That's one of the things <laughs> I learned. Right? All good will be attacked. <laughs> and we have to expect attacks. Uh, some people don't like it because I'm the sponsor. Some people don't like it because Corey's the co-sponsor. People just don't like some things just because they don't ha- have to have a good reason. But I will say I have been I've been uh, met with a lot of optimism about the bill. People want to tweak it and and change it some here and there. And I'm I'm happy to have an open conversation. One person made a suggestion that was a great suggestion that beyond distressed communities, when these natural disasters come through, like hurricanes or tornadoes, maybe that the, the governor could designate a specific community that has just gone through a catastrophic occurrence as a part of the distressed communities. And I like that definition as well. So we are still going through the process of trying to engage our friends on both sides of the aisle. The biggest opposition that I keep hearing has to do with the fact that I'm giving the power to the governors and to the local government to make the decisions. And in my opinion, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. People trust the government closest to them more than they do, they do the federal government. So I want to make sure that everybody has a chance to succeed, and I don't need the power, I don't need the influence, and I don't need the credit. I just need something to change. And so my goal is to make that change happen. I'm so glad you mentioned uh, local government. That's, that's a point me and Frank, we really try to drive home because a lot of people feel like, uh, there, there's no difference in, in who to vote for for president or, or Congress or whatever. 
And while we do try to tell them that there is a difference and you should vote in that, local elections are just as important. And like you say, mm-hmm. uh, they, they really, I think they affect you much faster than uh, federal government. Um, I, I, I think you're right. I, I have served on the local level. I've served on the state level. I'm now on the federal level. I will tell you that your most immediate impact from government comes from your local city and county councils who are in a position to impact your trash, your roads, your vehicle registration fees, your property taxes, your law enforcement response. Thank thank God for people like you who will serve this nation in uniform, putting your life on the line. God bless you for doing so. The fact of the matter is that most of those decisions and most of the funding does not come from the federal level. We can provide some grant funding, but the reality of it is it's your local tax base that is making the investment to keep your community safe that makes sure that the EMS comes when you hit 911, making sure that your local malls and grocery stores are properly secured and that the lights work. I mean, so many of these decisions are absolutely uh, not federal decisions. And that's why I like to present to the, to the local government and the state government the opportunity to be in charge of things like the investing and opportunities act. I feel like you are an interesting politician. You beat what I feel like is the most popular name in South Carolina. As I stated in the beginning, you're one of two African Americans in the Senate. Uh, and by and large, Democrats enjoy about 90 to a good 90 percent of the vote from from black people. As yes, you uh, as you as you answered Frank's question, you know. You spoke why you are a Republican and and why the Republican Party would be good for minorities. My question is, have you at all urged your party to, because I think the message gets missed from a lot of black people and minorities as far as what the Republican Party does. Have you urged your party at all to, as far as more outreach, to get minority support? Because we, a lot of black people don't want to vote for Democrats all the time. They just feel like they have to because the Republican yeah. Party isn't appealing to them. So have you at all uh, urged your party to reach I, out more? I certainly have. I mean, I, I've had a number of conversations with the, with the National Party that I think has done a better job in the last two years than it has in the last four or five years. But progress is slow. Uh, the ability to stereotype an entire race of people or entire political party is very easy to do, unfortunately. We have... We have seen that happen as African-Americans. We've seen that happen. I've seen that happen as Republicans. But the real key is what uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. spoke about uh, so many years ago, uh, the content of character versus color of skin. Please judge me as an individual. I think we should all decide to judge people as individuals. And, frankly, I'm not suggesting that everybody should join the Republican Party. I'm suggesting that we should be open-minded in how we select who will represent us. And if we have an allegiance 90 to 95% of the time to one party, we are politically becoming more irrelevant to both parties. Wow. Well, well said. Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, Investing in Opportunity Act is a bill. You can visit scott.senate.gov slash opportunity agenda for more information. Uh, I'm sorry about your spurs, by the way, Senator. 
But we Man, it hurt my heart, bro. It hurt my heart. <laughs> but thank you for coming on, sir. Well, thank you for twisting the knife, brother. Have a good day. I would like to really thank Senator Scott for joining us again. That website is scott.senate.gov slash opportunity agenda if you'd like to read more on the uh, on the bill that we discussed. And the big name that I mentioned that he beat, I kind of had to rush that last question as the senator was running out of time. But for those of you that follow politics, you remember Strom Thurmond. That's a powerful name in South Carolina. Strom Thurmond is the guy who filibustered, I believe it was the Voting Rights Act or the Civil Rights Act. But he set like a record for filibustering. When you filibuster in the Senate, you pretty much have to talk nonstop because you're so against uh, a bill being passed that you would do whatever it takes. He filibustered that bill. He set a record. So Thurmond is like a conservative hero in many circles. And I think it was his son that uh, Senator Scott beat for his House seat. And then once Senator DeMint, uh, he left the Senate. Governor Nikki Haley of South Carolina appointed Senator Scott to the Senate. Uh, so he beat a big name, I thought. And I just want to get your thoughts on this, Frank. But I would say he needs to be the face of the black Republican. Me and you talked about this. Right now, when you think black Republican, you think Stacey Dash or, or, or Justice uh, Clarence Thomas. And that's why a lot of people, a lot of black people especially, just turn away because they they really don't feel like those people represent what, what black people, what African-Americans, you know, value. And I think, you know, just talking to him, if he could be the face of black Republicans, then who knows? They may be, well, they still have a lot of other work to do, but I think that could really, you know, begin to turn on how black people view Republicans and specifically black Republicans. So what, what, are, you, what are your thoughts on the interview and, and that dynamic? All right, a couple of things before, before you brought up Strom Thurmond, just to just to fact check, you were right. He filibustered the Civil Rights Act of 1957, and he spoke for 24 hours and 18 minutes straight. Ooh. So, I mean, <laughs> if you th- if you think I can go on a rant, I mean, and, yeah. And, and, and folks, he can't sit down during that. He can't sit down. He can't, you know, say, hey, let me walk off the floor. And you, you can't stop to go use the restroom. When senators get ready to do that, they usually wear like an adult diaper or something. 24 hours. Sorry to interrupt you. I just want people to really get an idea of what a filibuster is. I, I, I think that's great. You know, the whole the pain, the picture of a, somebody who's so hateful, they'll put on a basically a depends um, and, and sit up there and, and defecate and urinate on themselves to stop a bill from passing. But. Uh, you know, that's, that's just part of the game, right? So as far as the interview with, with Senator Tim Scott, just, you know, again, thanks, you know, come, for coming on again. Like, like you said, we're a new show, but I feel like, you know, we're definitely a new voice to, to opening people's eyes, uh, of, of, you know, a black Republican doesn't equal an Uncle Tom. And I think that's something that people, uh, need to move past. And I'm not saying to go out and vote Republican, uh, at all, especially with Trump and, you know, in, in looming as a nominee. I understand a lot of people wouldn't want to vote for him. I totally understand that. But what I'm saying is going forward, you need to understand who has what, uh, your interests at heart, you know, and understand, you know, what is going on. I think that, you know, this is one of the few, I mean, he talked about things in the bill like we don't want to do gentrification to, we want to, 
put the money in the communities and, and, and allow the communities to rebuild, you know, and be self-sufficient among themselves. So that way, you know, a lot of times, you know, we, we both live in between D.C. and we both have visited a city and seen the change in the last, you know, t- you know, 10 to 15 years. And yes, D.C. is a, looks a lot different, but the residents look a lot different, too. So it's like, OK, yeah, it looks it, the, the, the property values are higher and maybe there's less crime there. But the people that live there aren't used to live there aren't benefiting from it. There's a whole bunch of new people living in the city now. Um, and so that's uh, what you kind of don't want, because that's kind of that's not fair to people, you know, when they're living in a tough situation, as he's mentioned, the distressed communities, you want to revive these distressed communities. And I think that that's something that a lot of people don't associate with uh, the Republican Party as being like, wow, they want to revive a distressed community, understanding that the people there still have great value. So I just think that um, it was a great interview, a great eye opener to get people looking at, uh, you know, not just, uh, you know, voting one party or the other. In the future, understanding that there are candidates on both sides that 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 are worthy of your vote, depending on who's running for what office and what the issue is. I think that's the main thing and, and pledging your vote just to one party blindly, because that's what you know has been done in the past is not good enough anymore. It marginalizes who you are, who we are as an electorate. So it's just something to think about. I think uh, that's what we're here to do is, is open up, uh, you know, a different dialogue. You know, obviously going back last week, thinking about you know, talking about the Muslim uh, in America with Salim Muhammad and going through that, just like people need to have uh, a broader perspective. Um, and sometimes what we grew up with, you know, certainly we we're both from the South. We had a certain perspective on certain things that our parents may have just done because they did it. But we we need to be able to move on beyond that and raise our kids and, and, ho- and have them think for themselves as well. Heading into the, tw- you know, as we continue into the 21st century, because that's how, uh, you know, you're really going to be able to uh, make a difference in your community and when you're voting and things like that. Investing in opportunity is the bill. Uh, he also mentioned as far as tackling jobs and education. Again, if you go to that website, you can read up on that for education. It's called the Choice Act. And the bill that he has that will address jobs is the LEAP Act. So read up on that again. Scott.Senate.gov slash opportunity agenda. And again, thank you so much, Senator, for coming into the show. Um bit of sad news frank uh this past friday uh well actually thursday i was uh you know i was on the treadmill watching espn and i saw the bottom scroll muhammad ali was in the hospital and then i thought i saw something that said he's going to be fine so i kind of you know no longer really paid attention to it and then the very next day he wound up passing away this man was an icon born in louisville kentucky uh, he was 56 and five in his professional fights, three-time champion. Uh, before T.O., before you know Steph Curry was shimmying and and, and uh, things of that nature. Before you know Ray Lewis was was loud. He was what what I consider the first like brash, you know, vocal athlete that just you know you didn't have to wonder if he was the greatest. He would tell you, "I'm the greatest. I'm pretty. I'm this. I'm that." And he he was just an important figure in in that sport. Um, it's it's somewhat kind of funny to me though how I say he's gotten that that Martin Luther King treatment. What I mean by that was, you know, when he was doing all that talking, there were a lot of people that you know claim they like him now. There were a lot of people that didn't care for Muhammad Ali, and if you know the history, 
you know what he went through, uh, the names that he was called when he uh, decided not to go to that Vietnam War. Um, and just like, you know, with Martin Luther King, you know, he was called a racial agitator in different names. The FBI was, you know, uh, wiretapping the man and things like that. Once Muhammad Ali could no longer talk like he used to when he was diagnosed with the uh, disease that he had, that's when more and more people began to like him when he couldn't really verbally speak his mind. And just wanted to get your thoughts. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure how much of a boxing fan you are, but you don't even have to be a boxing fan. Like I said, he was bigger than the sport of boxing. He was literally an icon. I'll tell you a funny story. I, you know, I listen to a lot of talk radio. Listen to uh, we talk about this, you know, on some other shows. Listen to Dan Levitard, Bonnie Jones, et cetera, et cetera. And George Foreman had an interview one time and he said something that was very, very interesting. He said that he was going out with a woman and, you know, the woman didn't mean any harm, but he ended up not going out with the woman or, you know, basically dismissing her after this. But she was like, Muhammad Ali, man, he is just she is such a beautiful man. And George Foreman, you know, of course, everybody knows about George Foreman and, and his rivalry with Muhammad Ali. But at the time, obviously, George Foreman was a much younger man. He took great offense. And in, in years later, he said, you know what? I, I just couldn't handle the fact that he was a beautiful man. He was just you know, confident and everything he did was just was beautiful. And so that was amazing to hear a man say that years later, uh, who was a, obviously a fierce rival. And we and, and for people that don't know about what kind of boxer George Foreman was, he was a tough, tough guy. I mean, so I mean, just just, you know, hearing that and going and going back to what you asked me about Muhammad Ali, I mean, he did so much. He he didn't just do he was obviously a great boxer, and, and you mentioned some of the other athletes. You mentioned Steph Curry, and I think you mentioned um, T.O. And, and other guys. And you, you go back and you think about Dr. J or Michael Jordan or LeBron or anybody who's any, – any kind of athlete who has showmanship, he was the first to do that. But he didn't just do that. He was also a political activist, which a lot of athletes, you know, have have shied away from. You know, certainly you think about guys like a Michael Jordan, who basically has zero to say about political, you know, politically versus a guy like Muhammad Ali, who was willing to go to jail uh, for his beliefs, you know, against against the Vietnam War. So I think that he was just a man that, you know, was was not afraid to say and do. Uh, what he felt, and and certainly at the time, as you mentioned, it wasn't well received. But when you look back at it, look back at it years later, you realize that the trail that he blazed for many African Americans to express themselves in a way and not have to deal with the backlash that that he deals with uh, shows you how much of a, of of a, of a great pioneer he was, uh, a man he was, like, and, and just you know the fact that he's no longer with us is definitely a, a tragic thing because he was a great figure. Uh, certainly the Parkinsons. Um, had, had slowed him down uh, and such, and he wasn't, you know, obviously the same type of, you know, man he was earlier. But, you know, his spirit, you know, will live on, and and hopefully for those people who are not familiar with him, go watch, you know, a documentary on him. Go watch. I'm sure there's some some DVDs with some of the older fights that that he's been in, some of the great ones. So, uh, just just a great uh, person was lost. Uh, certainly. Uh, we, we wish his family, um, friends, and best people who support him certainly uh, just just you know keep keep the family in your prayers as they go through this time, and we just wish the uh, Ali family the best through this tra- this tragic time. My wife asked me, uh, did I think he was? Do I think he was the greatest of all time? And I told her, you know that that's debatable. I definitely think he was one of the greatest heavyweights of all time. 
Uh, but for me, it was more than, uh, you know, what he did in the boxing ring. As I stated, we mentioned the, the N word earlier. You know, one of my favorite quotes from him is, uh, you know, no Viet Cong ever called me nigga when it was uh, when he was saying he wasn't going to go to the war. And like you say, man, just standing up for his beliefs like that. It's not it's more than that. Like he this dude miss what was he suspended for, like three years in his prime. So many consider him the greatest now. Just think if he was able to fight those three years in his prime, how much more he probably could have accomplished. He sacrificed a lot, a lot. And you you probably you won't find any athlete that will sacrifice that much. I think the closest thing we have to this and people are going to roll their eyes because a lot of people hate him, uh, probably LeBron James. And he's not going to go that far. But, you know, he definitely did the whole Trayvon Martin thing. Uh, he, he spoke out. He wore the uh, I Can't Breathe T-shirts for um, Eric Garner. And he definitely was one of the first uh, star players to speak out on Donald Sterling. But nothing not, that pales in comparison to what Ali did. Again, three years of his prime that he missed. So when you, when people ask me, was he, the, was he the greatest boxer of all time? To me, it doesn't matter. He was one of the greatest human beings of all time. And, and that's what's important. He would truly be missed. Boxing definitely lost a legend. America lost a legend. Because like, like I said, he was bigger than boxing. And it's just it's just really sad to see him go. But like you say, we can we definitely can go back and watch a lot of his fights and, and just enjoy that. But he would truly be missed. And again, I'm not overstating it. An icon was lost. Rest in peace, Muhammad Ali. And like you, I want to echo the words you said, Frank. Thoughts and prayers definitely go out to the family. Before we go, uh, Frank, uh, have, have you ever flown JetBlue before? I almost did, but I wasn't able to uh, get the, the, the times I wanted, so I ended up not making the reservation. But I've heard they're okay. I've never flown them, though. I, I had a good experience. I've had one flight with them, and I, I had a great experience with it. But I'm not sure a young lady by the name of Maggie McMuffin will be flying them again. Maggie McMuffin is a uh, burlesque dancer, and she was actually denied entry onto her flight. Uh, I believe this was like last week, very recently. She was denied entry on her flight. Uh, it was the pilot's decision and the reason why she had on some shorts that he deemed too short. Now, from the picture I've seen, you know, I, you know, I, I've seen short shorts before. I, I think I've seen women with shorts on that short on my flights before, especially when I go to Miami and you're going down there in that hot weather. A lot of times people will dress how the weather is going to be when they land. So it was kind of different for me to see. But the, the pilot stated that he felt her attire would offend families on the flight. Uh, Miss McMuffin had to wind up purchasing $22 worth of pajama pants and, and, and stuff to cover herself up. Now, JetBlue has said that they will that they have reimbursed her for the pajamas. And they also gave her a one hundred and sixty three dollar uh, future flight credit. Uh, but she has said that instead of the money, she would prefer that they be more clear on what the attire is for the flight and that they apologize. She truly felt embarrassed. Um, did you see the picture and did you see the shorts? Do you think the pilot was right? Or was this pilot overreacting? I think the pilot tried to shoot his shot and got shut down and he threw her off the plane. <laughs> 
So, so instead of going in a DMs, he just he tried it right there. He tried he tried to get at her when she got on the plane. She wasn't feeling it. He was like, you know what? You you can't get on my plane. You know you know how guys do. We're very we're real sensitive. Um, folks, we want to thank you again for listening to another episode of Politically Entertaining. We can't thank you enough. This is something that me and Frank do because we definitely want to try to inform you guys. But it's also fun for us. We we enjoy doing this. We enjoy coming up with the topics to discuss. And we enjoy, you know, trying to figure out ways to make the show better. So we hope you continue to enjoy, continue to support and help us spread the word. Uh, the main reason we're doing this show is because I feel like we can overcome money and politics. You hear that a lot over and over that. You know, the candidate with the most money is usually the one who wins. You can overdo that. We have recent examples. The former majority leader of the House lost his seat a couple of years ago to a guy. I think he had maybe half a million dollars in his campaign. Uh, Eric Cantor, he, he lost his seat. We can overcome money in politics. An informed electorate is a powerful electorate. Follow us on Twitter at The Vocal Minority. That's at D-A, Vocal Minority. We're also on Facebook, as I mentioned earlier, Politically Entertaining, as well as Instagram under the same name, Politically Entertaining. Again, to reiterate what Byron said, we just want to keep you informed as an electorate. This is a huge election coming up in, in five months. So just get ready uh, for more shows with more informative uh, news and, and things. And again, we thank you for listening and we'll see you guys soon on another episode of Politically Entertaining. Thank you for listening to Politically Entertaining. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes and visit politicallyentertaining.com for the latest in political news and updates.